Amen. Well, you guys, good morning. Welcome. Grab your Bible, if you will, and meet me over in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We are wrapping up a series over the next couple weeks through the book of 2 Timothy that we have been in for quite a while now. And one of the things that I love about this book is it gives you an intimate look into the life of Paul. Something that's unique about the book of 2 Timothy, if you're new around here, is we know, according to 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is the very last words that Paul wrote. Um, he's sitting in a time in history where the Emperor Nero is about to execute him uh, because things are going really poorly. AD 70, the temple is destroyed in Jerusalem. Uh, around the same time, you have the Emperor Nero who burns down the, the city of Rome and blames it on Christ followers, and that was his excuse so that he didn't get up in it because most people don't like it when you burn their houses down. And things start to get really bad for the Christians. Well, Paul, Paul finds himself in a situation in which he is imprisoned by this emperor and he knows that his life is coming to an end. So he writes his protege, Timothy, a letter with the most important things that he wants to leave behind. Because that's what you do. When you have one last thing to say, no pun intended, you spill your guts to tell exactly what you want people to know. So as we end this journey or land this plane through 2 Timothy chapter 4, I want you to keep in mind that Paul is wrapping up the very last words he's going to say to his friend in the most intimate of ways. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Read them with me. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Well, as we wrap up this final chapter of this book, Paul is going to lay out for Timothy as he passes the baton to him the most important things that he wants him to know. And, and he tells him and reminds him that there are a lot of things you can do. There are a lot of things you can do, but don't spend your time doing good things at the expense of the thing that God has called you to. I mean, this is a good word for all of us. Maybe for you today, you come in here overwhelmed by all the good things that you can be doing, right? There, there's a list of awesome things that, that are sitting right in front of you, and yet for most of us, we never get around to doing the thing that God has called us to do because we find ourselves doing a bunch of good things that somebody else could do. I love Tim Keller. He, he talks about idols, and he says, idols are not normally bad things. They're normally good things that we've elevated to God things, and then it replaces our worship of God and we put it on this. For, for Timothy, Paul wanted him to know there are a lot of really good things you can do, but be committed to the one thing, the most important thing in the entire world. Let me show it to you, verse one. It says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Paul is coming out here hot. Paul says, I charge you. It's like he's making an oath. He's saying, this is so important, Timothy, that I'm going to make an oath to you in front of God because I need you to do something. If you take a step back, 
And you think about the trajectory of the entire book of 2 Timothy. Paul, in, in chapter 1, he starts out by, by talking about just how gifted um, the, the, the world, uh, the Christ followers are. He says, fan into flame the gifts that God has given you. And then, then he takes this 30,000-foot view, and he starts to narrow it down. He talks about Scripture, and how he says, God has breathed Scripture out. Literally, the only thing in, in the entire world that God has breathed on is you in the Bible. It, it, it says, that Greek word there is theos noustos, literally God breathed. He, he breathed life into you, and he breathed life into this word. So Paul says, if God is going to breathe life into this word, then teach this word. It's the most important thing you can do with all of your life is to give it to this thing because there's power to make you come alive here. See, Paul had a super high view of the Bible, which meant that he had a super high view of the scriptures. And he told Timothy, if the Bible is God-breathed, then naturally the, the most important thing you can do with your entire life is give it to this word. Here's the big idea today. A high view of the Bible leads to a high view of preaching. Y'all at City Church, we believe that preaching God's word is the most important thing we do. It's not the only thing we do, but it is by far the most important because there's power in this word. That's why the foundational pillar of this church is biblical preaching. By the way, what Paul is about to say is biblical preaching isn't getting up here and talking for a while. It's not giving good advice and telling people some wisdom from the Bible. You don't need seven lessons from Uncle Billy. What you need is you need me to stand up here with a Bible in hand and lay out for you and proclaim to you the authority of God's word without apology, which is why we take time to go verse by verse through the Bible. This is why I just believe that if I teach this word faithfully for the rest of my life, we will hit every subject there is, which is why I don't have to respond to when cultural issues come up. And if I spent all my, all my time responding to every single issue that comes up in the world, I'd never stop talking about issues. But if you teach the Bible faithfully, the Bible addresses everything that life has to offer. Listen to me, my job isn't to tell you anything that I think. My job is to tell you everything that God thinks. And that's what I want to give my life to. Paul took this so seriously that he pretty much tells Timothy, he's commanding him before God, in front of God, the God that will judge him, to teach this word and to teach it faithfully. Again, look at it. I charge you, Paul says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Paul's like, look, Pastor Timothy, look, Pastor Timothy, don't forget who you work for. You are not the senior pastor of this church in Ephesus, Timothy, Jesus is. By the way, that's the same thing is true here. I am not the senior pastor at City Church. We don't believe that. Our church government says that we are Jesus-ruled, elder-led, and congregationally accountable. I've told you this before. I say it at every Discover City Church that we do. The moment we stop teaching the word of God, you should leave. Because this is not my church. It's Jesus' church. I want to be really careful. I want to be really careful to teach God's word. Let me say it to you like this. I work really hard every single week to be faithful to teaching this word, and I never phone it in because I think it's the most important thing we do. Jim, Jim was telling me, he's like, you should just lay out for just a second for people how much time you spend on this. And I think that's important. All day Monday and all day Tuesday, all I do is I block out my calendar to study and prepare for this. 
On Wednesday, I have a group of people that I meet with for about two hours where I walk through every word that I write and they critique it. Our elders get a copy of the message before it's ever preached and they critique it. On Thursdays, I go back through and I refine it and then I do the sermon slides that go up on the screens. And then on Friday and Saturday, I'm looking at it more and more because it's the most important thing I do. I would tell you about 70% of my time is given to studying this word, and I sit down and I research and I write because I love to do it, and I count it a privilege that you let me do it. So I want to take it seriously. I think Paul was trying to stress to Timothy that the thing that you do, Timothy, on Sunday mornings is the most important thing in the entire world because you are unfolding the life-giving message of Jesus Christ for his people. And you better believe that God takes it seriously. Now, with that in mind, let me get super practical real quick. Because the reality is, most people in this room and watching online will never stand on the stage and preach a sermon. I, I get that. I get that if I'm going to be faithful to the Bible, this is primarily talking to people that do what I do for a living. But let me just say this really practically. Even though you'll never preach a sermon, maybe, God has still gifted you. And he's entrusted you to be stewards of a certain type of gift, and he is paying attention. Here's the point. There is an audience of one for all of our lives. I think that's what Paul wanted Timothy to know, is Paul is telling Timothy, God has gifted you. He's entrusted you with this, and he's watching and paying attention. Y'all, sometimes I sit back in my office in the most humble way on Monday morning whenever I, I open up my Bible because we teach verse by verse and it comes one of those passages that's just really tough. And I sit there and I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm kind of nervous. I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. And you know what? Sometimes I wonder, why do I care so much? Why do I care so much about what you think of me? And, and again, I, I, I hear me in the most humble way. I'm like, God, you're my judge and this is your word. Why do I care more about what people think of me than I do about being faithful to you? Maybe for you, it's, it's not that, but maybe, maybe for you, it's where you spend your time. Some of us spend way more time trying to impress our boss than we do our wife and our kids. And I sit back sometimes and I wonder, why do we, why do we live our lives trying to impress people who ultimately don't matter at the expense of the one who ultimately does? You know, something we learned coming to Alpharetta that was just unique to hear is when we dropped our kids off at school, apparently it was a beauty pageant every morning because we showed up to the line and like every mom we knew had Lululemon soccer clothes on, or tennis clothes on, and we're like getting out of the car. I'm just trying to like wake up, especially the last couple of weeks with my wife being in the hospital. I don't even know if we brushed my kids' hair or teeth. I'm just like, you just got to go. And, and, and I'm sitting there wondering, like sometimes I'm like, no, this is the superficial stuff. I get it. But I was like, why do we care so much? Why do we care so much? about all the stuff that just doesn't make all that much of a difference. I think sometimes we, including myself, forget that there's a God in this world who is go that we're going to stand before and give an account for what we did with Jesus. And instead of taking the amazing gifts that God has given every single person in this room and leveraging them for the kingdom, we tend to build our own kingdoms with the gifts that he's given us. Look, I'm not saying because I think sometimes we, we think this. I'm not saying everybody in this room needs to be like Jim Boyle. I asked Jim for permission before saying this. Like, you, you know, Jim was a member of our church, and now he's our executive director here. And oftentimes people think that that's what I think you should all do, is quit your jobs and come work at the church. But here, here's one thing you might not realize about Jim, is Jim didn't start out that way. Matter of fact, when Helen, his wife, started coming to the church, Jim didn't even come. 
Helen, he, said, he said, Helen, you figure it out, and once you find a church, I'll be there. And then he started coming after a while and didn't serve or didn't do anything, and eventually he became a part of our production team, and he did that a little bit more, and then eventually I asked him, would you come on our team full-time, and we would pay you an exuberant amount of money. I mean, there are more zeros behind his salary than I can describe to you, and he gives all of his time and his energy to this church, and listen, our church is super blessed because of it, but I think Jim would be the first person to tell you that he's come alive in the process too. Like, what, what ended up happening is little by little, as even when we we're sitting down talking about it this week, it's almost like God had peeled back the layers to show him that this is what you were always meant to do. Listen, I think that's how God works. I think that God uses our obedience, and as we do it, he unveils the gifts that we have as we give them to the church, and then we become alive in the process. That's what happened with him, and I think that that's what happens with all of us as we do this. Here's what I can tell you. The church is better because of what he's done, but I think he would tell you that he's better because of what he's done too, and that's how it always works. I want to say this really clearly. God doesn't need our gifts. He doesn't need our help. He's not sitting up in heaven, sitting there saying, man, if they would just do what I asked them to do, we would build his church. No, God says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's not up there wondering when we're going to leverage our lives for him. Y'all, he's inviting us into something amazing. He's waiting on us to realize that he has brought us into a better story. And as we give ourselves to the story, our purpose in life comes alive and he builds his kingdom. Here's the deal. You and I, we will never realize the potential of what God is doing in us if we continue to give our lives to impress the people who ultimately don't matter at the expense of the one who does. That's Paul's point. If Timothy was going to make a real impact in this world, he needed to know that the only person in this world that he needed to impress was God himself. And as he gave himself solely to God, what ended up happening is everybody else around him, everybody else around him benefited too because honestly, that's how it works. That's how it works. Here's something I've learned. When I am so worried about what I say that I water down what I'm going to say because I don't want to offend you, what ends up happening is it never makes a massive impact. But when I don't really care because I'm wanting to please and direct my gaze at God, what he ends up doing is he ends up taking this word and he changes your life because the power is not in what I say. The power is in the word of God. Paul wanted Timothy to know that this is how serious preaching was. He told him that God himself was going to stand there and God was going to listen. It also means, it also means, Timothy, that the people around you aren't your judge. You aren't my judge, God is. So my aim needs to be to please him and not worry about offending people around you. Listen, God gave Timothy a job and it was a pretty unpopular job. Trust me, I know, sometimes it's hard. But Paul wanted Timothy to know, hey, Timothy, as I'm going to my dying days, the greatest impact you can make on this world is just give people Jesus. And his opinion is the only one that matters. Jeremiah 23, 28 said it like this. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream. But let the one who has my word speak my word faithfully. Y'all, look at the language in 2 Timothy 4, chapter 1. Our verse 1, look at it. He says, appearing, judgment, and kingdom. In case you don't pick up on it, that language that Paul is using 
is one that's telling you that God is coming back. He's going to appear again. He's going to come back in judgment, and his kingdom will be built. He's going to come back to check on the investment that he has made. Now, can I just be really clear with you? The investment that God has made is you. You are the investment. Think, Think about how amazing this is. He created you. He breathed life into you. He called you. He gifted you. He put his spirit inside of you. He put on flesh to live your perfect life and die your death and raise from the dead in order to unite him back to yourself. He has adopted you. He has called you. He's commanded you to have dominion over this earth and to build his kingdom. And he promises you that he will never leave you nor will he forsake you. And then he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Y'all, that's a big deal. The king of the universe has set his affections on you. And if you think you are of no value, then you've missed the entire point of the Bible. What you do matters because the king has endowed you with some of the greatest gifts imaginable. By the way, this is why he didn't just tractor beam you up to heaven the moment you became a Christian. If the whole point was for you to become a Christian, then you wouldn't be here anymore. The point is that he wants little agents, little Christ followers all over the world using your gifts to build his kingdom. His plan is for you to build a culture that reflects his kingdom. So let me just ask you, are you living for the temporary or are you leveraging your life for the eternal? Are you using your gifts to multiply God's kingdom, whatever they are, wherever they are? I know Chris said earlier as he was speaking, he's like, my gift is not to get up here and speak. That might be true, but you know what? He's really gifted at the company that he just built, and he's really gifted at the insurance that he was doing in London and all the other things, and God has gifted him differently than me. Uh, I, I, I told you this before. If I look at a rake, I get a blister. He works with his hands. Praise God that we have different gifts because God uses both of them in different ways to build his kingdom. And if you don't know what your gifts are, can I tell you the easiest way for you to figure out what you're gifted at? Just start serving. See, here's where your giftings come alive. Where our needs and your passions meet is where you tend to be gifted. The problem is, for many of us, is we just don't jump in. So we really don't even know where we're gifted. Now, I'll I'll tell you this. The, the, The two worst ways to try to figure out how you're gifted is this. Here's number one. To just assume your giftings. Oftentimes, we don't even know what they are until we just start doing it. And God makes us come alive as we do it. You find out what you're passionate about, and as you find out what you're passionate about, God uses that, and you become more passionate about it. The other way that I just think is a horrible way is these spiritual gift tests. I I kid you not, I have a friend, a really good friend who took one. He's married, has four kids, and do you know what his spiritual gift test said he was? His spiritual gift was the gift of celibacy. He's got four kids and married. I think the ship has sailed on that one. Listen, the best way for you to figure out what you're gifted at is just to get on the bus, get around people, and allow people to draw out the gifts that God has given you as they encourage you in those things. Theology one-on-one. Spiritual gifts aren't the Spirit's gifts to you. I think most people mess that up. Let me say that again. Spiritual gifts aren't what the Spirit gives you. Spiritual gifts are what the Spirit gives the church through you as you continue to exercise those gifts. So with that in mind, listen to what Paul tells Timothy. Preach the word. Preach the word, Timothy. That word preach, it literally, it's the Greek word that means herald. 
It, it doesn't mean to teach. It means to proclaim or to herald. Here, here's the idea. In the ancient times, when there was a war, you would have a guy that would get up on a horse with a white flag, and he would, he would take the horse up to the gates, and he would hang his white flag, and then he would unroll a scroll, and he would read a message from the king. His job, his only job, was to read that message. He wasn't to add anything to it or take away anything to it. He was the messenger there to be a herald for the message of the king. That's what the word preach means in the Bible. My job, it's a good picture of what my job is. My job is not to tell you what I think about a lot of different stuff. Preaching is simply one thing. It's somebody standing up on this stage, opening this book, and his only job is to tell you what this book says that the king wants you to know. Preaching is not your opinion. Preaching is not good wisdom. Our job is to teach what the Bible says, not what we think. That's why we teach the authority of God's word without apology. Why? Because the whole thing is breathed out by God. I told you this last week, everything that God breathes on comes to life. Think about it. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when he created humans, what did he do? He breathed life into you. After Jesus rose from the dead, the very first thing that he does is he breathes into his people and it's just signifying that his spirit is going to come alive in them in a new creation. And the only other thing in the Bible that he breathed on was this word. This word has the power to make you come alive again. Martin Luther, I love the way he said it. Martin Luther said, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. I did nothing. The word did it all. I did nothing. I left it to the word. But it brings him, Satan, distress when we only spread the word and let it alone do its work. Look, I don't want to be harsh here. But if you ever find a church where they don't teach the word of God, it's not a church. Because the central task of the church is to proclaim God's word. They can have all kinds of great community. They can have great programs and really awesome music and all the stuff. But the only task that God has given centrally to his church is to preach his word. That means that when you're looking for a church, the primary thing you should look for is do they teach God's word? Not do they teach it well, simply do they teach it? Are they unfolding the scriptures? Because honestly, the messenger doesn't really matter. The message does. You can sacrifice a lot of things, but don't sacrifice the Bible. One of the most convicting statements comes from a guy named Kerry Newhoff. Listen to what he says. He says, it's a shame when people come to church looking for God and only find us. Y'all, I love you. I don't really care how wise I might be. None of us have the words of life in and of ourselves. God does. When I get up on this stage, my only goal is to fade into the background so that you can see Jesus. I want to expound the gospel because my good advice only will send you straight to hell. God's word, God's word has the power of life in it. The resurrection power, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is found in this and this alone. So Paul says, preach the word. Be ready, he says, be ready in season and out of season. That just means be ready all the time. Let's talk about that, that idea of being ready. How many of you, how many of you are ready to talk about Jesus whenever that moment comes? Whenever those opportune moments present themselves, are you ready to share the gospel? Just the other day, um, I was at my, my buddy Reese's house, and he was having a pool party, and 
and, and we're eating a bunch of wings, and we're just hanging out, and some guy, whom I'd never met before, walks up and tries to start making some small talk like guys do, and he starts saying a bunch of stuff um, that paints himself a little bit in a corner. You know, he's, he's trying to be funny, and it's not super funny, and what always ends up happening as people do that, they get on the edge of the cliff, and they, they ask the age-old question, what do you do for work? It normally gets really awkward at that point, real awkward. Well, sir, after you just degraded me for the last five minutes, I am a pastor. You know, he stopped there. And he said, would you pray for me? And I thought he was joking. I'm like, yeah, man, we'll pray for you. He's like, I was just diagnosed with a terminal illness the other day. And I haven't even told my kids yet. And I don't know what to do. It got serious really quickly. He's like, I don't know what to do. I'm not going to see my kids grow up. I don't know what my life is going to, what's going to happen. And it, I could, it could end any day now. It's like, I, I, got, I found I have a brain aneurysm. What do you do in that moment? You just tell the gospel. I told him. I was like, man, most people that get a brain aneurysm never know that they had one. They just die. Maybe this is a gift from the Lord that you can slow down and enjoy the moment that he has you in right now. And I explained the gospel to him. And that me and Reese are just sitting there kind of dumbfounded, like, I cannot believe this just happened. And the reality is, is any time that the Lord presents you with an opportunity, are you ready? Are you ready whenever your colleague walks up to you and they're like, hey, man, how are you? And instead of just saying, how are you, just tell them the truth. So doing this the other day, I had the opportunity to go on a run in my neighborhood, and one of my neighbors asked that question. And really quickly, I wanted to be like, I'm good, how are you? But I didn't. I was like, hey, man, you know, I just got to be honest with you. This is going to get awkward but I've committed my life to telling the truth because I think it matters. We're not doing very well. I don't know if you noticed the green bracelet, but my wife's been in the hospital for the last several weeks and it's been really tough. And he's like, man, I had no clue. And then he opened back up and he says, we went through something really similar. And we talked for like 15 minutes. He's like, how are you doing? I got to share the gospel again. Sometimes you, you, you can walk up just strategically and be like, hey man, what are you doing this weekend? People are like, well, we're going to the beach, we're doing this, or we have a baseball tournament, whatever. You can be like, hey, my family, we do that kind of stuff too, but we go to church, and I, I cannot wait this weekend because I love my community. And you just open up the door to a whole conversation about Jesus. My question for you is, you don't have to have a theology degree to be ready in season and out of season to just talk about Jesus whenever those opportunities present themselves. Now, with that in mind, again, because I want to be faithful for what the text is talking about, this really is primarily addressing those who are going to preach the Bible. What Paul tells Timothy is that there's a couple things that happen when you teach the Bible. Look at them. He says, be ready in season and out of season. He says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul tells Timothy that when you teach the Bible, these things are going to happen. And now listen, they're not always easy things. That, that word rebuke or reprove, it means to reprimand. Paul says, when you teach God's word, it's going to reprimand people. Now, that's hard. Do you know why God does that? Do you know why God reprimands you? Because he loves you. Think about it. If God gave you everything you wanted all the time, he wouldn't be loving you. How many of you have ever met that, that kid that their parents never said no to? Right? You like that kid? No. You don't like that kid. You don't like their parents either. They, they tend to be spoiled because they don't understand that the job of a parent is not to be your best friend. The job of a parent is to be your parent. 
Sometimes the most loving thing that God can do for us is to be a part of our lives. Listen, it is God's grace that leads to repentance. It's his wrath that lets us do whatever we want. The worst thing that God can do is leave you alone. It is literally the definition of hell. God backing out of your life completely and leaving you to yourself. So he rebukes or he reprimands through his word. Number two, he exhorts. Exhort means to spur on. Have any of you ever seen a cowboy kick a horse with a spur? It doesn't feel very good, but it gets that horse moving in the right direction, doesn't it? That's kind of what God's word can feel like sometimes. The Holy Spirit can be like the spur that kind of kicks us in the butt every now and then. It doesn't always feel great, but it gets us moving in the right direction. By the way, in Greek, if you look at the way these words come out, the word reprove has to do with what we think, the word rebuke has to do with what we feel, and the word exhort has to do with what we do. It's actually Paul is saying that the word of God is there to move the whole person in a direction towards Jesus. Now watch this. God's word, it does some of those tough things, but that's not all it does. Number three, God's word encourages. I love this. Sometimes we need to be prodded, and then sometimes we need to be encouraged. I'd never actually seen a shepherd before. Like, you know, we talk about shepherds all the time. Until one time I was in uh, South Asia, and, and we got stuck behind a bunch of sheep with a shepherd. And, you know, they have the staff with a little hook on it. And what I always thought was that the shepherd would have to get behind those sheep and just kind of kick them, right, and make them go. But the shepherd just walked. He was in front, and the sheep followed Sometimes you kind of have to do this, right? And sometimes you actually have to encourage. Like sometimes, sometimes when I think about my kids, and I've been at home on daddy duty for the last six weeks with my kids, sometimes, sometimes they're just having a hard day, and they need to be a little swift kick in the butt, and sometimes they just need to be encouraged and loved. Sometimes they need to pull over the car and let them know. Like this morning, uh, Addison, my, my middle child, we, she woke up on the wrong side of the bed, let's just say, to say the least. We get to the church parking lot, and Hare's like out here. She's like a gremlin, and it's, it's tough. She's mad, and I open up the door, and my first thought was, um, not good. But you know what? I open up the door. Miguel, if he's in the room, he, he kind of walked by as he saw this. I just grabbed her and hugged her, and I looked at her, and, and we just sat there for a moment. And I said, sweetie, I just want you to know that I love you, and I care deeply about you. Gremlin turned into princess real quick. Sometimes you have to realize that God's not always out to get you. Listen to me. God loved you so much that he died for you. God created you. And in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Paul uses the word poema, which literally means he made you his poetry. You are his worksmanship. You really are the culmination of his creation. He really did die for you. He hasn't left you, nor does he forsake you. Paul tells you in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that even when you are faithless, he remains faithful. You see, the most beautiful thing about the gospel is sometimes it gets behind you and has to give you a little swift kick, and sometimes it embraces you and reminds you that he loves you. That's what I love about the Bible. It is living and it's active. It is good for you. Sometimes it cuts you, and sometimes it makes you whole. But, but I need you to understand, it's not a person that does that. It's not me that does that. It's God's word. That's why we need the Bible. You don't need me. People need direction and encouragement. People need to be led and convicted, but they don't need me to do that. They need God's word to do that because the power of life is in this. Y'all, if you underline words in your Bible, I'd underline this phrase. It's one that I really need, complete patience. Complete patience. 
Here's the deal. Every single person in this room is on a different journey in the race towards Jesus. It's taken me a long time, a long time to recognize that everybody in this room is on a different path and a different journey towards Jesus, and it's not fair for us to treat everybody as if we're all on the same journey. I love this because I need to hear it. I'm not naturally a patient person. I am naturally a type A, go-getter, let's charge the mountain type of person, and like, you can come follow me, and we're going to get there type of person, and yet, sometimes God's like, why don't you just slow down and be patient? Here's a lesson I'm trying to learn, is that oftentimes I look through windows at people, and I do look through more mirrors. Windows sit on the other side of the wall in judgment, looking out. Mirrors make you look back at yourself. The worst thing that can happen is not that you get offended. The worst thing that can happen in your life is that you leave when you get offended. And you don't sit in the process of God patiently working in you and I as we lovingly endure the offenses that we have. See, growth happens when we sit in the offense of the gospel and let it shape us. Like, I thank God. I thank God that he was patient with me. I thank God that he's patient with me because I'm a work in progress. I love Jesus so much. And I've been walking with him for almost half of my life now. And my life is still a mess. I still battle pride. I still battle contentment. And I wonder sometimes if Jesus was as impatient with me as I am with other people, would I be here today? Y'all, I think we would do well to look through more mirrors back at ourselves than windows at other people. It took me a long time, again, to realize that a healthy church should have all types of different people in it, should have people all over the sanctification process. We should have people who are super spiritually mature and people who don't know Jesus at all in the same place walking together, right? We need people, we need people in this room, and I love you people that, that are so spiritually mature that you need me to parse out the original languages and go deep and, and, and look at the different parts of the scripture and the nuances and study exactly how all this works together. I love you. I really do. Like, you guys are my people. I am a scripture nerd. But sometimes, if you're in that category, you have a really hard time understanding that there are people here on Sunday mornings that simply need me to tell them that Jesus loves them. That it doesn't need to be all that deep. Because there are people in this room that didn't grow up in a Christian subculture and they don't know how all these different nuances work together. They just need to know who Jesus is. I mean, I know for a fact that in this room right now, there are people that don't know that Jesus died in their place because their sin separated them from God. I know this because we've had the conversation. I know that there are people that don't know that Jesus is God in the flesh. And what the challenge for all of us is, is that we have to speak to both audiences at the same time. We've got to be willing to go deep and unfold the beauty of Scripture at the same time. Here's what we need to do. We need to be patient enough to let God do his work, understanding that all of us are on a different journey towards Jesus. So I just say this. Here's a good rule of thumb. Give people the same amount of grace that you wish that they would have given you when you started walking through your journey. I'm just telling you, the struggle is part of the process. The struggle is part of the process, and people need to be able to struggle. Listen to me. It's okay not to be okay here. It's just not okay to stay there. For all of us in this room, we have to remember that we didn't, if you've been a Christ follower for a long time, you didn't start that way. And I praise God that there were people in my life that walked with me and allowed me to come along that journey. 
Can I just slow down for a second and say this? I don't ever want to pastor a church that doesn't give people grace to grow up into Jesus. Listen, I want to pastor a church that does not tolerate sin and yet at the same time doesn't crush people when they do. You hear that balance? There's conviction and yet grace. I want to be at a place where, where people realize that the process is exactly that. It's a process and it takes time to let Jesus' love work through us because what we need is we need more Jesus and not more judgment. And as we give people more Jesus, the gospel tends to do its heart work on us. And I think that's the point. We don't have to beat people up every time they sin in order for them to stop sinning. That's what the Pharisees did. What we need to do is we need to show that Jesus is far more attractive than the stuff that tends to get us. And as Jesus becomes more attractive, those things stop. Write this down. I want to give people the same amount of grace that God gave you. I think that's a good rule of thumb to live by. And by the way, can I just say there's nothing more practical than God's word to shape your life? You don't need seven ways to a better life. What you need, you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that teaches you what true love is. Right? If you want to define love, God is love. It's not whatever you want it to be. That love... That love is this, that Jesus would take on flesh to become a propitiation, a substitute for your sin. Jesus dying in your place should give you the extreme amount of confidence to know that the king of the universe put his delight and his affections on you, and yet at the same exact time, it should give you an extreme amount of humility to know that you needed God's grace in order to have him. So let me get really practical. If you understand the gospel, if you understand that God delights in you, if you really understand that there's nothing that can make God love you any more, and there's nothing that's ever made God love you any less, because it's not dependent upon what you do, but upon what Jesus did for you, then that should give you extreme confidence to know that there's nothing that could ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, and extreme humility to know that it took God's grace and God's grace alone to save you and not your good works. The gospel is the most practical piece of advice on the entire planet, and that's why I want to spend my entire life preaching the gospel. If you want practical, give yourself to a church that's willing to teach God's word without apology. Y'all, there's balance in this too, by the way. There's balance in a church built in this. This is what we tried to model City Church on. We, we use this phrase around here a lot, gospel balance. Here's what we mean by that. It means that we want to be a church that is super attractional in every way and yet deeply biblical. Because I don't think you have to choose between the two. I think that you can be welcoming and awesome and have great environments and put a lot of resources into creating a space to where people feel welcome and they feel like they're accepted here. I think that we have a great church with a lot of hospitality and a lot of kindness. And we put a lot of time into that and you don't have to sacrifice the gospel to do it. I think we can have great connections teams. I think we have kind people and great music. And I think we can do all of that without sacrificing the integrity of the gospel because somewhere along the way, the church has went from this both-and culture to an either-or culture. Either you're a church who's super friendly and awesome and your environments are great, but you never tell people the truth of the gospel, or you're like really biblically sound but you're kind of like that McDonald's fry that you find underneath your seat of your car that's been sitting there for 10 years, right? You're, you're kind of stale, and if you, it looks perfect, and, and nothing's ever changed. That's the miraculous thing about those fries, and yet if you eat it, it will kill you, right? It's 
kind of what a lot of our churches look like. Our churches either teach the truth of the gospel, and yet they act like people don't matter, and attraction doesn't matter, and they end up killing people. Or they're super attractive in every way, and yet they never tell anybody the truth of the gospel, and they end up killing people. We should hold the tension of both, this gospel balance to where people and attraction and and great community matters, and we put time and resources into our kids' space and our music and into our environments, because that stuff matters. God has entrusted us with excellence, and yet we should do that understanding that God's word is the most important thing we have. You don't have to choose. But oftentimes, we end up choosing. Now, let me show you why. It's found in verse 3. It says this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There it is. We end up choosing because oftentimes it's more palatable not to teach the Bible. And it's a lot easier to build an audience. Now, I don't know if you know this, but at the end of the day, here's what ends up happening. You say, come full circle, if you forget that, like Paul said in the very beginning, that your judge is God, well, you'll end up compromising that in order to tell people what they want to hear because, honestly, we kind of like to be liked. Just be honest with you, it's a lot easier to build a crowd when people like you. That word sound, though, means, it means healthy. It's actually where we get the word hygiene from. The Bible is almost like the salad for your soul. When I first started... Um, trying to get my life in order and, and get back in shape in a lot of ways, I started eating salad. And I'll just be honest with you, eating salad all day felt like a cow eating grass. It wasn't the most delicious thing. However, what I realized was I got healthier. My, my heartburn went away. I lost weight. I started feeling better and having more energy. And, you know, I loved eating hamburger, cheeseburgers and candy all the time, but eventually it was going to kill me. That's what it's like whenever you don't have a well-balanced nutrition for your life, and the Bible is supposed to be the nutrition for your life. When you feast on God's word, it's not always easy, and yet you find that it brings nutrition to your soul. City Church, I'm just telling you, we are in danger, all of us are in danger of walking away from God's word to join the echo chambers of this world that make us feel like we are, feel good about ourselves. When we do that, when we find teachers like this, listen to what Paul says. It says that they suit your passions. That, that word passion there, it's actually the word lust. And, and here's what he's saying. I need you to hear me say this. He's like hearing whatever you want to hear all the time is like porn for your soul. It is empty and it's depleting. It overpromises and it underdelivers and it makes you fall deeper and deeper into these hollow places where you eventually abandon the real thing for the fake. And as you abandon the real thing for the fake, you find yourself on an island, and on that island, you die. You don't come to life. There is nothing more deadly for your soul than trading in God's word for somebody who will tell you what you want to hear all the time. You become like that kid whose parents never told them no. You know why this is so dangerous? Because it sounds good, and it's appetizing, and you like it. And yet, little by little, as you chew on these nuggets that actually have some segments of truth in them, you find that little by little, you abandon the real thing for a fake, and you start to look to those fakes for the real thing. So you read more books, you get more advice, and you find that you, you, you abandon God in the end, and then your soul rots. Listen, we don't need more wisdom. We need the power of God. 
And that's what Paul told Timothy. If you want to make this thing continue to go, teach the word. I tell you this all the time. I love you way too much to just tell you what you like to hear. See, many, many of the times we gather on Sundays, it'd be a lot easier, a lot easier not to do what we do, but I'm just telling you, I think that God cares deeply about his word, and I want to give my life to that. Now, here, here's how I want to land the plane. Paul gave Timothy some advice that I think would be good for all of us. This practical advice was this, Paul, or Timothy, in order to do this, to do what I'm telling you to do for the rest of your life, you got to take care of your relationship with Jesus. He, he tells him, you, you have to invest deeply your heart, your mind, and your soul because if you want to teach Jesus faithfully, you're going to take some punches. If you teach the gospel relentlessly, you are going to go nine rounds with this world and the only way you're going to make it out, Timothy, is if you make it out with Jesus. This is what he says. Look at verse five. He says, as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's what you need, Timothy. You need to be sober-minded. Literally, you need to have sobriety for your soul, for your mind. Timothy, if you feast on the things of this world, you will get drunk on those things, and you will make poor decisions. So you need to have a mind that is filled with Jesus, because that's what it looks like to have straight living. The truth of God's word is the one thing that will keep you grounded, Timothy. Invest in your relationship with Jesus and you will ooze it out. The other thing he says is endure suffering. One of the things I've learned is suffering has an incredible way of either making you walk away from Jesus or find him sweet. Listen, most people that I know that walk away from Jesus, it's not because of an intellectual argument. It's because their faith came face to face with some real suffering and they chose to walk away. But what I know about the Bible is that God is in the desert places. He is sweet and he's there. He was there when the Israelites were in the wilderness. He was there when Jacob got to the end of himself and had to wrestle with God. He was there when Joseph felt like he was all alone. He was there when David was at his deepest and darkest moments. He was there when Jesus went into the wilderness with Satan. And he was there with Paul in this moment as he's sitting in prison awaiting his execution. Y'all, he's been there for me over these last six weeks in the deepest, darkest places of our life because what I've found is when I'm at my lowest point and I look up, it's always the hand of Jesus. Always the hand of Jesus reaching down for me. I, one of the most famous stories in the Bible that's almost always mistaught is the story of Peter walking on water. If you've ever heard this story, uh, the story goes that Peter starts to sink because he takes his eyes off of Jesus and yet that's not the truth. Here's the point of the Bible, or point of the story, because it's always about Jesus. It's not that Peter sank, it's that when Peter sank, Jesus reached out and touched him. That's always the point. In your deepest, darkest moments, when you are sinking, if you will look up, what you will find is you will find the hand of God looking down on you. That he will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. If you will endure suffering in this world, God will meet you in that place. Y'all, I've told you this before. When you are in your hardest point, when you feel the worst, God doesn't reject you and you're not furthest away from him. Think about it. Think about it. Matt, when your kids are at their darkest place, do you reject them or do you bring them in and embrace them? Amen. Right? That's what a good father does. Oftentimes, we believe the lie that in your darkest moment that God is rejecting you and yet that's when he's the closest to you. When you need him the most, that's when he is the closest to you. If you will endure suffering, what you will find is at the end of suffering, there is God himself strengthening you for another day. And then he says this, 
do the work of the evangelist and fulfill your ministry. You know the best way to do your ministry, the best way to invest in your relationship with Jesus, the best way to fall in love with him is to tell people about him. You know how I know that? You know how I know that? Because we all talk about the things we love the most, and as you talk about those things, you actually fall more deeply in love with him. You hang out with Dustin for 10 minutes. You're going to know everything that there is to know about Clemson, and you're going to know everything there is to know about his kids and their sports. You hang out with Richard for five minutes, and he's going to give you 17 reasons why Kirby Smart's hair does not look like the mushroom off of that, that video game we all used to play. You hang out with the Bama fan for seven minutes, and you're going to throw up. You hang out with Dan. You hang out with Dan for two minutes. You're going to find out how much he loves men and how passionate he is for men's ministry and how much he loves a good book. You hang out with Ian. You're going to find out how much he loves music. And the more you hang out with him and you hear him talk about music and things he's passionate about, the more passionate he becomes, he becomes alive in those things. This is what Paul is telling him. Be an evangelist. Preach the word. Don't stop preaching the word. Tell people about Jesus. Tell them about Jesus more and more and more, and God will make you become alive because he will fill you up with more of him. And the more confidence you have in what you're talking about, because honestly, if you're going to talk about something, you need to know about it, which means you're going to study it, and you're going to learn it, and you're going to go deeper into it, the more he's going to use you to change this world. See, if we want to see the gospel continue to move through the contours of our culture, it's going to start when we become the evangelists, when we preach the word. You realize this. God has entrusted you with the one thing that can actually change this world. Think about that. This word that he breathed on, that people have died for, that Jesus gave you and has endured for 2,000 years, he has given to you and entrusted you with it. And he says the greatest thing that you can do with your life is preach the word. Give yourself to this word. Go out there as you leave today. Talk to people about this word right here, and what you will find is he will use you to change this world. So Timothy, you, me, the most important thing you can do is give people Jesus. And that's what we want to do.